BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This podcast has a Patreon page and we are so, so close to reaching our first major listener-funded milestone. If you love this show and you want to support it, you can put us over the top by heading to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 55. Are you weird? I mean, are you a weird person? Like, a weird. A member of the weirds. You probably are, and you don't know it. Think about this. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're extremely weird in many ways. But in one very particular way, you are so weird it has scrambled up the manner in which psychologists and neuroscientists conduct and analyze their research. The discovery, or maybe even more accurately, the epiphany, the realization that their subjects were weird, has led to a restructuring among every discipline devoted to the study of the human mind. And that didn't happen all that long ago. In fact, the study, the one that really put the weirds on the map, came out in 2010. The title of the study? The Weirdest People in the World? Question mark. (laughs) This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm your host, David McRaney. And on this episode, we will speak with one of the authors of that study, Stephen J. Heine, who in 2010, along with his colleagues, Joseph Henrik and Ara Norenzayan, collectively slapped every psychologist in the world and told them psychology is just too damn weird for its own good. And if we are ever going to understand the human mind, that has got to change. Weird, by the way, means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. How did weirds nearly derail our understanding of the human mind? You'll learn all that after this break. Look, critical thinking is not just having all the facts and sitting there and carefully contemplating them and trying to use your rationality and your reason. It's much more difficult than that. It is so easy to go down the wrong path and not know you're doing it. 
And if there was an instruction manual, if there was some course in college you could take to make it so that these things didn't happen anymore in your head, or at least you could mitigate the damage that you might do in the future, it would be this one. This is it. The Great Courses series, Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking taught by Dr. Stephen Novella, professor of neurology at Yale, host of the Skeptics Guide of the Universe, person I have sat on panels with and I have met in person and he's been a guest on the show and he talked about conspiracy theories. And this is just someone who will really take you through all the bits and pieces and teach you how to think better. In the series, you get a look at metacognition, how our brains work to process information and misinformation, which shapes our thought processes. And there's powerful practical tools in this series that will make you a stronger critical thinker in both your personal and your professional life. Here's some of the titles of some of the lectures. Now, you know, a great courses series is actually a whole lot of lectures. So it's like an entire course in college or something like that. And each one of these comes in video and audio form. It's great. And here's some of the names of some of the lectures in this series. The many kinds of pseudoscience, our constructed reality, critical thinking and science in your life, the trap of conspiracy thinking, pattern recognition, flaws and fabrications of memory, errors of perception, marketing scams, urban legends. It is perfect. If you're a fan of this show, this is the one to get. For a limited time, you can get this course along with eight others that were selected for you, the kind of people that love this kind of stuff at 80% off the original price, 80% off for a limited time. But to order your deceptive mind with my special offer from the great courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Before we get started, full disclosure, I've been working on an article for Politico about the effects of regional culture on political attitudes, and I interviewed Stephen Heine for that article, but a bunch of things we talked about ended up not fitting into the piece, so I thought it would make for a really interesting show to explore those ideas, and that is what you're about to hear. So here's a weird question. Is low self-esteem bad? Or put another way, is high self-esteem good? Is it a good quality to have high self-esteem? That's not a simple question with a simple answer. Once psychology started to plunder ideas like that, it was like astronomers discovering the solar system was just stuff floating around a single star among billions in one galaxy among billions. To understand what I mean, let me tell you about one of Stephen J. Heine's studies. Hello, Steve Heine. Heine is a psychologist at the University of British Columbia, and he and his colleagues, years back, partnered with scientists in Japan. They wanted to compare students in North America and students in Japan to see how they differed when it came to notions of self-improvement. In the study, students from these two different cultures, broadly speaking, Eastern and Western cultures, received either positive or negative feedback during a test. At the midpoint of this exam, 
that was supposedly evaluating creativity and emotional intelligence, the experimenters handed out sheets revealing the correct answers on what they had completed so far. And then they asked the students to grade their own work up to that point. Unbeknownst to the students, some had been taking a much harder version of the test than the others. And so when they used those answer sheets, those students discovered many more incorrect answers than did their peers. And after all these students, half from Japan, half from North America, learned that they were either succeeding or failing, they then turned in those grades and moved on to the second half of the test, which involved answering the same kinds of questions, but this time using a computer. Shortly after setting all of this up, the psychologists then pretended that the computer had crashed. And while supposedly waiting on someone to figure out how to get the computers working again, each student was given an opportunity to practice on another set of questions. And this is where the real study begins. Like so many studies in psychology, the actual focus was something other than what the subject expected. This study was all about how much effort would students from different cultures put into this opportunity to practice. Now remember, half of the students from Japan and half of the students from North America were feeling like they had been blowing this test so far, and half of them thought they had been doing just fine. So, offered a chance to practice before taking the second half of the test, how would they differ? Well, the scientists measured how long each person practiced on the second set of questions, and the differences were pronounced, forming a sort of nice giant X when graphed on a chart. For the North American students, learning that they had been doing poorly so far on this test, it seemed to sap their will to try harder and get better at answering the questions. They did not seem to want to practice as much as other people in the study. They slacked off once they realized that they were behind. But for the Japanese students, that exact same knowledge caused them to increase their efforts and to persist even longer. Now, for the North American students, the ones that had learned that they were doing well, their persistence levels also shot up. They tended to push harder when they learned that they were ahead, unlike the Japanese students, who under the same conditions tended to slack off compared to Japanese students who thought they were failing. So, why is this? Why is this? The exact same conditions are present. Either you're doing well or you're doing poorly, but people from different cultures do the exact opposite thing once they learn this information. Well, the reason is because human psychology is not identical from brain to brain. These students had two different kinds of brains shaped by two different kinds of cultures, and thus they had two different kinds of minds that were affected differently by the exact same situation. I asked Heinem the question that popped into my head as soon as I read this study. You know, you, you ask yourself, if you were to ask someone, what is the right way to approach a classroom? Um, you know, people have a sort of a general idea that there is a right way to do it. And that your study seems to show that the right way to do it depends on the kind of brains you're doing it in front of. Um, is that a sort of a right way to look at it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Although I, I mean, just like to emphasize that there, there's always going to be individual differences. So within any classroom, you're going to find some people who um, 
you know, respond really well to pointing out challenges that they have to face, and other people are going to respond really well to pointing out their strengths. But overall, I think that, uh, yeah, in uh, the U.S. and in Canada, there's more of a norm to uh, respond um, to any kind of information indicating your successes, that mm. um, that sort of directing your attention to wh- what it is that you're good at and wanting to focus your efforts at that. And uh, in Japan and uh, in East Asia more generally, uh, there's more of a tendency um, to, to focus on areas where there's uh, people see room for improvement. And part of the reason for this is that um, people think about abilities different across cultures, that um, uh, in East Asia people believe abilities are more a product of their efforts uh, than uh, North Americans tend to. I mean, effort's important in North America too, but it's really important in East Asia. I mean, uh, in, in Japan, there are these surveys of what is your favorite word, and one of the words that usually comes up at the top of the list in Japan is effort. <laughs> and uh, I think effortless would probably rank higher in, in uh, English than, than effort <laughs> as a positive yeah. word, right? Um, uh, so so I, I, I think that, yeah, you you know, the, the culture shapes the ways that you think uh, about abilities, and because of that, it shapes the ways that how you respond to uh, feedback about your abilities, um, and it shapes the way that uh, that you're motivated to do your best. So these are generalizations, and there's lots of variation and nuance. But generally speaking, the research indicates that Westerners are extremely individualistic and usually jump at any opportunity to assert that individuality and stand out. So for a person from North America, knowing that you are already ahead means that with a little effort, just a little more effort, you might outshine everyone, which is one of the ways we measure achievement in the West. People who stand out from the crowd and seem super successful compared to the rest of us, those people have achieved something. And that's why when the people in this study felt like they were a little bit ahead, they put in more effort. Now, in Eastern cultures, there isn't nearly as much emphasis on individuality. Instead, there is more attention spent on the idea that selves are part of a whole, connected to and influenced by a network of others. And if you are way ahead of the crowd, that's an indication that you can slow down. If you're behind, though, less than average, that's when you become extremely motivated to improve, to join the collective. Now, this is a great revelation from studies like this. When you ask how you should teach a classroom, with more feedback focused on praising achievement or more feedback focused on when you're falling behind, there isn't a universal answer because there isn't a universal human mind concerning situations like this. Both answers are 100% correct. They're the correct approach in both directions. It just depends on the kind of brain that's receiving that feedback. So when I asked you earlier about whether or not high self-esteem is a good thing, that's a trick question. If you grew up in the United States, then yes, It is. People in the United States perform better and are generally happier when they have high self-esteem. But in Japan, until recently, there wasn't even a word for self-esteem. It feels like the right way to do something. Like I was really struck by the self-esteem, about how self-esteem in uh, Eastern cultures is not really that closely correlated with happiness where it's extremely correlated with happiness in in the West because you think I've thought my whole life like high self-esteem is an important thing but it's and it is important to the kind of mind that I have right uh, but it's not a universally important thing and that's that's an insane thought (laughs) yeah so um 
I mean, I think it's it's telling that in uh, Japan, the word for self-esteem is serufestimu. I mean, it's an imported English word because um, the Japanese words that get closest to it sound quite negative. They, they sound like arrogance. Huh. Um, and uh, I think the idea of, you know, focusing on what you're good at is is kind of suggesting that, well, maybe I don't need to try so hard anymore at making myself better. Because I think in Japan, these are very closely um, linked the idea of trying hard and, and improving. And that's sort of the, the emphasis is on this process of always trying to do more and always trying to prove. And that's how you contribute to the success of your company, the success of your family. And um, I think it's just a much more individualistic uh, attitude in, in the U.S. and much more of a focus on on product and, you know, and, and achievement. So the, the goal is to, um, to you know, to, to succeed at your goal that, that, that's that's what you're trying to do is to to do something well and to and and to focus on how you've done something well rather than focusing on ways that you might be able to do better uh the next time mm-hmm. i think these are really uh two quite profoundly different orientations towards life so until you learn that self-esteem is not a human universal you have no reason to think otherwise if everyone you meet and interact with values self-esteem and it does, in fact, correlate with improved happiness everywhere you look, you will naturally assume that it must be true for all people around the world. As the researchers pointed out in the test feedback study, you will readily accept and offer advice like, all you need to do is just believe in yourself and you can accomplish anything you want. Which seems like great advice. It seems like universal truth. But that's only good advice if you are offering it to someone from North America. For many people in other cultures, that's actually terrible advice. There are many other examples. From town to town, state to state, family to family, workplace to workplace, the cultures that shape us remain invisible to us. As Heine and other cultural researchers say, it's like water to a fish. And as a result, most human beings suffer from what psychologists call culture blindness. A natural inability to notice that your own thoughts and behaviors are heavily influenced by the culture in which you grew up and the one in which you find yourself currently. One of my favorite examples of this is the smell of cheese. In the West, it's delicious. In the East, in many regions, not so much. To many people in other cultures, cheese is gross, awful, horrible, stinky, hardened, rotten milk. So who is correct? Well, though in opposition, both facts are correct. Cheese is gross. Cheese is delicious depending on what kind of brain you have, which on this matter was shaped by culture, not evolution. A study conducted by researchers in the UK had people smell some fake cheddar cheese flavoring and rate how nice the aroma seemed to them. If told ahead of time that the smell was of cheddar cheese, they rated it as being quite nice. But if told ahead of time that they were about to smell body odor, they said it smelled disgusting. Neuroscientists call this cognitive modulation. Culture shaped their very neurons to mediate between the smell and their subjective experiences so that the same smell with two different culturally created labels actually resulted in two different subjective realities that were equally valid. In other words, cheese actually does smell like stinky feet. But if you've been raised in a certain culture and you have a certain kind of mind, then you can get past that fact and eat it anyway.
So what does all of this have to do with the weirds? People who are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Well, that's the sort of people who tend to go to college in the United States. And when it comes to cultural blindness, the United States is among the most culturally blind cultures on Earth. Since most psychological research is done in the United States and done on college campuses, that means almost all the studies you have ever heard about, from Milgram shocks to Stanford prison experiments to the Piaget stages of development to the Bobo doll being punched by little kids, all of that, even the stuff in recent bestsellers and in TED Talks that you pass around on social media, it's almost all entirely research conducted on North American college undergraduates. So if you were to sort the different kinds of minds made by the different kinds of brains shaped by the different kinds of cultures around the world, weirds as sort of a category of person make up a very, very tiny number of people. They are the atypical human being. Weirds make up only about 10 to 15% of the total human population. Now, amazingly, in 2010, as, as recently as 2010, this was sort of new information. At least it was epiphanous. This was something that Heine and Joseph Henrik and Arya Norenzayan put out in this sort of landmark paper titled The Weirdest People in the World. I have it here in front of me. It's a gigantic paper with so much information. And it's just... Uh, it's, it's 133 pages. It's a big paper. And, you know, it comes right out of the gate in the abstract saying behavioral scientists routinely publish broad claims about human psychology and behavior in the world's top journals based on samples drawn entirely from Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic societies. Researchers, they go on to say, often implicitly assume that either there is little variation across human populations or that these are sort of standard subjects. They're representative of the species as a whole. In other words, for a very long time now, we've assumed that psychology is human psychology. But in many ways, it's been the psychology of weirds. This is sort of my criticism of, of my field psychology, is that it is, um, it's uh, the most um, American-centric of all the sciences that have been studied, that uh, it's the vast majority of psychological research in the world happens in the U.S. And um, the uh, and which is a curious question in and of itself. Why are um, Americans so much more interested in psychology than, than the rest of the world? At, hmm. at many uh, American campuses, it's the most popular major. Much of the rest of the world, it's not even offered in universities, right? So there's some peculiar fascination with with, with psychology. And because most psychology research is conducted with convenient samples of people, because psychology has embraced the, the, the same um, assumption that you're talking about there, where it's kind of assumed that, well, any person's brain is as good as anyone else's. Why not study the convenient ones rather than you know, have to go trekking halfway across the world uh, to study the brains over there? And so because of that, most studies are done with con most convenient populations, which at universities are university students, and then most of the research is happening in the U.S. Um, and, and the other countries were, uh, which are next in line for uh, the most research are all English-speaking countries. The next three are the U.K., Canada, and Australia. So the four biggest contributors to psychological research are, are all of these um, English-speaking countries. Um, 
and uh, they're they're studying the people around them and just assuming that well you know these are universal theories without having necessarily tested all of that and and the more research that's explored as well well how similar are people thinking around the world has revealed that well in many respects there there's a lot of profound differences and quite surprisingly I think that uh, Japan which is you know very Similar to the U.S. in many ways, that it's you know uh, a very um, modern, um, industrialized, wealthy society, highly educated society. Um, yet uh, there's still some pretty profound differences in the ways that people uh, approach life and the ways that they think. Yeah, that's, I, I saw. I I think I in looking through all this, I I uh, saw um, a video where Paul Ekman said that you know we we basically at this point in in psychology have a psychology of college undergraduates. <laughs> So like, yeah. So like exactly. And, and and I think for for me and for many people, especially in America, we think we have a psychology of the human being, but we really have a psychology yeah. of this like subset of human beings. Um, yeah. It's, so that's a that is a controversial idea in psychology, and um, so we have a paper uh, a few years back which we use this acronym weird for mm-hmm. Western educated industrialized rich democratic societies, <laughs> and. Um, and yeah, um, and looking at a, a wide array of evidence of from psychology studies conducted around the world, the American undergrad is in many dimensions a real outlier in their psychology. They're not oh, yeah. the, the typical person or, or the average person. They're an outlier, and uh, they're on the extreme end of a distribution. And so we are generalizing not just from a narrow sample, but from from an unusual sample. And I think it's a real challenge for psychology to uh, to internationalize more and to uh, find out the different ways that the, the the mind operates in different circumstances. <laughs> and that can be different as from Mississippi to, to San Francisco, or it can be different from uh, you know uh, hunting gathering tribe in Tanzania uh, versus uh, a New Yorker. In, in a way, it's exciting because it's like, oh wow, look at all this meat that's that's on the bone. Um, yeah. and, and it also is kind of weird and scary because it's like realizing that you're that all of biology is is based off of studying blind cave spiders or something instead of yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, um, I think that's a good example. Um, so, so here's something I wanted to know what, what you thought about the. Um, Since Heine and his colleagues' paper about weirds came out, there's been a strong refocusing in psychology and in neuroscience. We now know that there is so much more to understand about human beings than we first believed, and we aren't nearly as far along in our progress as we once thought. It's led to some interesting ideas, too, some really loopy things. For instance, Other researchers have noted that the term weirds is itself a culturally influenced concept and that the letters represent the sort of differences that Westerners tend to think are the most different between cultures. Whereas if that analysis and criticism had been written by someone from another culture, then those letters would probably have been different as well. Much of Heine's work has explored the fact that there isn't one kind of human brain, but many variations. Of course, there are some biological limitations to that variation. For instance, humans can't see as many colors as a mantis shrimp, so none of our thoughts will be concerned with those impossible to see colors. 
In addition, all sorts of things in our heads are the product of evolution. So the urge to walk upright or the ability to feel anger and empathy, these are things that we inherited from our evolutionary ancestors and the forces that pressured them, which means although brains vary, the substrate of consciousness is alike in many fundamental ways. And one quality we all share is also a quality that leads to our variation. Natural selection led to the human brain's amazing plasticity, a widespread malleability that makes all brains capable of amazing feats of rewiring. And that is where culture comes in. Just as we learn a language, we learn a culture, and that becomes the framework by which we begin to build models of reality that help us successfully interact with our environments. As the great anthropologist Marvin Harris once wrote, nothing that an animal does can be said to be free of genetic influence, and that includes our ability to both create and receive cultures. But even though everything we think and experience can be reduced down to neurons and synapses, that doesn't mean that just because lots of people tend to behave in a certain way that those behaviors were hardwired into the human brain. Culture is an extremely powerful force, so powerful that Harris compared its rise and spread among the human species as analogous to the Big Bang. Commenting on it, he wrote, Cultural reality comes from, but rises above, ordinary organic reality. Just as organic reality comes from, but rises above, its chemical and physical substrates. Thanks to language and art and artifacts and institutions, humans have created an entire environment of cues and primes that exist outside of our heads, that speak to matters that transcend mating and alliances and seeking food and shelter, even though that stuff is wrapped into all that. It all deeply affects the kinds of brains that we carry around in our heads. So the takeaway is this. The physical, biological, evolutionarily constructed brain generates the mind, and then that brain is shaped by culture, which is basically a set of human-generated influences naturally bounded in some way, often simply by geography. Two brains shaped by two different cultures will produce two different kinds of minds with different behaviors and models of reality and different ways of absorbing information and influences that lead to different ways of contemplating and different methods of mulling over different kinds of abstractions. Cultural influences go much, much deeper than norms, beliefs, customs, music, clothes, and all the other stuff we usually think of as being culture. The great insight from cultural psychology is that our cultural differences extend right down to the neurons that produce our minds so that two people from two different hometowns won't just have different opinions about the right way to do something, there will truly be two different right ways. So this is great with any science that suddenly realizes there's more left to explore. Any science that goes through one of these epiphanies, it, it's a wonderful thing to scientists and researchers and people all over academia. If psychology so far hasn't been the study of the human mind, but instead the study of one kind of human mind, well, I think that's wonderful because it means all these supposed human universals from all these famous experiments are actually part of something much larger and much more complex.
we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is supporting the You Are Not So Smart podcast. What is Wealthfront? It is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest of investors. But you can get it for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. And here's a great thing. Wealthfront is overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the index fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash SoSmart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Okay, here comes the required disclaimer, and you're supposed to read this quickly, and here we go. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. Broker services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation. My friend, I obviously see this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities, investing securities of all risks, and there's a possibility of losing money, performance, no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And now we return to our program. On each episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study before I read a, before I read, no, before I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com and if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you'll get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And full disclosure, I don't bake these cookies. That's the sound of me getting this cookie ready. I don't bake these cookies. My wife, Amanda, bakes these cookies. And she said that these cookies that we're going to do today are the most complicated ones ever. And I know they took all day to make. But before we talk about that, the study we're discussing in this episode is individual reactions to stress predict performance during a critical aviation incident. It was published in the journal Anxiety, Stress, and Coping, and I found it through the British Psychological Society's Research Digest in an article written by Christian Jarrett. I love that digest. And the article is called Just Two Questions. Predict how well a pilot will handle an emergency. So the authors of the study explain in the paper that pilots need more than just amazing skills in an emergency. They also need the ability to cope with extraordinary stress. I mean, you can just imagine you're in the cockpit and all of a sudden you're and things are going crazy and you, and you know that if you don't perform well, you and everyone else on board will die. And they mentioned in the paper how Captain Sullenberger in 2009 was able to save 155 people on board U.S. Airways Flight 1549 after a sudden loss of power to both engines during takeoff. Now, he made a water landing in the Hudson River, which is, you know, absolutely amazing. And they attribute this incredible feat not just to his skill, because, I mean, all pilots have to be great, greatly skilled, but his ability to deal with an insane amount of stress 
and still be able to perform this very complicated job. Now, in the study, what they did is they took 16 pilots and they had the pilots get inside one of the most advanced flight simulators in the world. And then they measured them in a number of different ways. One was by having in flight instructors watch them. Another was to actually use the metrics that are available in the flight simulator. Uh, another was to use eye trackers, which was, uh, it, that was able to determine where they were looking during the entire event. And in this flight simulator, each pilot had to go through an engine failure upon takeoff and then try to save everyone on board the simulated flight. So before they did this, all the pilots were told what was going to happen. They sat them down, and right before takeoff in the simulator, the pilots were told that they would be experiencing an engine failure on takeoff, and they would have to try to land the plane safely. And then each pilot was asked two questions. On a scale that goes from one to six, how demanding do you expect this task to be? And then the second question, on a scale from one to six, how able are you to cope with the demands of the task? The results of the study found that above all other measures of these pilots, including how long they had been flying, how much experience they had accumulated over the years, how old they were, all that kind of stuff, these two questions were the most predictive of what would happen next. What they found was that researchers in the study, what they found was that when people are in a state of threat, a threat state of mind, they generally perform much worse than when they are in a challenge state of mind. Many situations can be framed either way, as a challenge or a threat. When an alarming event leads you to feel threatened, you tend to miss details in the environment and become frantic as you seek some sort, seek some sort of escape. And that can be very, very bad if you're piloting an airplane in distress. And the authors point out that a threat response boils down to feeling like the demands outweigh your resources in that situation. Whereas a challenge response frames the situation as your resources outweigh the demands, or at least they will outweigh the demands, given you put forth the, the required focus and effort. So that's what happened in the study. The pilots who scored low on these um, scales, who they, they, and these were self-assessments, also tended to perform very poorly in the, in the actual uh, experiment, in the simulated uh, plane emergency. So although this is an early study, it's pretty amazing that just two questions about one's own emotional state can be so predictive. And it seems to provide evidence that how an individual reacts and thinks about stress can have huge implications when that person is then placed in a position of great responsibility that will inevitably involve a lot of stress, like being a pilot or a police officer or a soldier or a doctor. And there's many more examples than that. So this is really interesting research. If you want to read more, you can read the breakdown over at digest.bps.org.uk the title of the article is just two questions. Predict how well a pilot will handle an emergency. Now what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C oh boy, it's cookie That's time. You know that on each episode of this podcast, C I eat a cookie baked by one of you. And whoever... Whoever's recipe seems like the best one this, this episode is the one that gets the uh, signed copy of the book. Oh, man, this is one that we have been holding on to for so long. I didn't know when we were going, we were going to do this. I thought I was going to save this for a winter episode because it kind of feels like a winter cookie. But since this episode is all about weirds, I thought I would pick the weirdest cookie we've ever been sent. 
Um, there's one maybe slightly weirder than this, which involves fairies uh, and, you know, going out into the wilderness and taking mushrooms, I think. But this one, <laughs> this one, as far as just being an actual cookie that someone expects you to eat with, uh, you know, no preconceived notions, it's, this is the weirdest cookie of all, no doubt. And Mandy said this was the hardest cookie she's ever made. It took like, I'm, I'm thinking if I remember correctly, more than three hours to get this this cookie to be uh, to be part of our world. And we've got a bunch of them. I don't know who we're going to give them to because let me tell you what these cookies are. <laughs> this is so great. They are oatmeal, candy, bacon, cookie with bourbon, apple cider, maple syrup, frosting, and sea salt. <laughs> yes, they are oats and flour and wheat germ and baking soda and all this other stuff, cinnamon, salt, sugar, that kind of thing, butter, but also a pound of bacon and <laughs> bourbon, bourbon and apple cider and maple syrup and sea salt, bacon, bourbon, apple cider, syrup, and sea salt. It's crazy. It's got, it's just, I don't even know what to tell you. And you have to do all these steps. You have to slice up the bacon and render the fat. And then you have to set certain parts aside and caramelize the bacon. And then you have to actually make the frosting that goes on top of it out of the syrup and the, and the liquor. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And it smells like it doesn't smell great when it's cooking. I'm going to go ahead and say that it smells like, you know, I work in a distillery. Well, maybe, maybe that smells great to some people, but it smells, you know, like cooking alcohol, but the bacon part smelled great for sure. They're really, really, really amazing. They were sent in by Terrence Rogers and Terrence Rogers. Oh, what have you done? What kind of person comes up with something like this? He, he, the only thing he says in, in the email is, yay, I listened to your podcast at work and I figured you might appreciate these. Enjoy. So I'm going to give this a shot. It is, um, God, it smells so good. And they just look, they look like innocent little oatmeal cookies, but I know what's in here. This is a cookie. This is sort of the, uh, the anti granola cookie. <laughs> like if you crumbled this up, it would be granola. Thanks to the the, uh, you know, the sugar and the caramelized stuff, but no, it's anti-health uh, cookie. It's got bourbon and bacon in it. Okay. So let's give it a shot. Here we go. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, whoa. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So it starts out in, it has stages, oatmeal cookie, then sugary candy, then you taste the bacon and then it tastes like you take a shot, <laughs> a shot of bourbon. What? Whew. The alcohol taste is strong and good because it mixes with that maple syrup and just the whole thing. I feel like I should be on a leather couch with like a roaring fire. I feel like I'm not dressed appropriately for this. Like I should be in a smoking jacket to eat these cookies. What? <laughs> like these are, these are such adult cookies. Like I feel like a, they instantaneously form a Magnum PI mustache over your lip as you bite into it. it, it it's, it's, uh, it's, these are, <laughs> these cookies conjure up like an image full of big game heads on the wall. Like, like this is the Ernest Hemingway cookie. Like, <laughs> like, you know, they have Newman's own cookies with Paul Newman's face on them. If they had Hemingway's own cookies, it would be these made with fine bourbon and bacon and designed to, uh, please the expatriate in all of us. <laughs> I'm imagining, and uh, even though I personally don't like big game hunts, but I'm imagining that before every big game hunt, he had a bag of these cookies to give him energy, to make him feel strong. And <laughs> as he was 
Before he wrote about a bullfight, he had to have one of these cookies by his side and he had to sip on some of the bourbon from which, from which it was made. And he would say something, he would say things, he would, he would munch on this cookie and go, hmm, the world crumbles every cookie. And after, many cookies are strong at the broken places. But those that will not crumble, it eats. It eats the very good and the very bad and the middling, the kind you might find in a Happy Meal. And it does so impartially. If you are like none of these cookies, you can be sure it will eat you too. But there will be no special hurry. <laughs> I have no idea if that's how Hemingway sounded, but I do know for a fact that these would be the only cookie allowed in his Key West home. So I thank you so much. These are so good. Thank you, Terrence Rogers. This is an experience everyone must try. I will have the, the recipe up. I have to email him to make sure uh, that the measurements are correct because one of them seemed a little off. But other than that, these are incredible cookies made with bourbon and bacon and apple cider and maple syrup, and you will find them at the website. Oh, my. So adult. So Hemingway. This is where I was going to put the credits, but before I put the credits, there was one last thing that Steve uh, Heine said that had nothing to do with anything else we were talking about, So, but I wanted you to hear it, and here it is. You know, there is a, a paper published a while ago that studied what happened to students who took my cultural psychology class and um, looking at people who took it you know, before they were in the course and then after, and they also compared people who are in other kinds of courses that they don't learn about culture. And it just, yeah, learning, I think just learning about um, differences that people have different perspectives from you because it's just, it's really easy. You know, you meet someone, you don't know what's going on in their head. So the easy thing to do is just project what's going on in your head and assume that's what they're doing as well. And then when they act weird, then then you think there's something wrong with them or, you know, they're, they're bad, they're evil somehow, and that's why they're not um, uh, doing what you're doing. And I think learning about other cultures, um, I mean, uh, one of the nice things about that is you end up learning about your own culture too. It makes you aware that you are the product of these influences around you because it can really feel that, you know, we're living in an a-cultural world because your culture is, is blind to you. And, um, and also culture seems to be something that's, that's old, right? So we see it, you know, you travel to, to Europe or somewhere and you see like these markers of this, this old culture, centuries old. And, you know, in, in the U.S. everything's so new and it just seems to be changing all the time. And it's hard to appreciate that, that uh, you know, that we have culture too. And, um, and I think uh, actually uh, uh, some American political scientist Seymour Martin Lipset said, you know, those who only know one culture knows no culture that um, you, you don't actually appreciate uh, your culture until you've really come to understand uh, another one. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts just like this one. And head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes 
to listen to the entire back catalog of the show that is still possible. But in the future, we're going to have to start offloading those on into an app or something. So you can still do it. Just go to the website, check it all out. You can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode and all the other episodes in the show notes for each episode over at youarenotsosmart.com. You can learn more about both my books there. Send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. If I bake your cookie, I'll send you a signed copy. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus. On Twitter, it's Not Smart Blog, and I am at David McCraney. The opening music, I get emails about the, about this all the time, <laughs> which means you don't listen to this part, is Clash by Caravan Palace. And this music right here, this is Banjo Apocalypse. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.